Good morning. My name is Brett Sweet. I'm one of the pastors here at GCF where we do exist to glorify God through gospel-centered worship, evangelism, discipleship, and community. Please open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 10. Uh, in the black pew Bibles, I think that's going to be around page 421, and the blue Bible's around page 451. Um, that's by memory, so I, I may be way off. Somewhere in the middle of your, middle of your Bibles. We are finishing our, the end of our summer series uh, on the first 10 Psalms. Next week, we're going to pick up the Gospel of Luke. Start at the beginning there and work our way through it. Probably it will, it will take us more than a year to get through that. I'm very excited about that, as well as Sunday school and all those other things that are starting this fall. So Psalm 10 this week, uh, would you please pray with me? We re- really need God's help. Lord, we're thankful that you hear our prayers and that you care and that you are king. Lord, I confess that what I'm about to do is incredibly dangerous because I'm called to now represent you and speak for you. And I can do that very poorly or I can do that by the power of your spirit very well. So God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would come and fill me and fill this congregation of people whom you love so that your truth is known, that Jesus is present here by the power of his Spirit, and that he would be the great hero, and that we would come away transformed. Pray that we would not be careless listeners, but that we would be careful listeners and speakers. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you ever wish you just lived in the world of TV commercials? I do sometimes. Drink this beverage and you and your friends will have the times of your lives. Take this medication, ask your doctor about it first. And pretty soon the world around you will be calm and friendly. Everybody will be happy. Buy this car and everything is suddenly exciting. Visit this website and you'll meet the love of your life. Wouldn't it be nice to live in the world of TV commercials? The the reality is that the world of TV commercials doesn't reflect reality because they're missing one thing that reality has. And that's evil people. There's evil. The world of commercials is joyful and peaceful and exciting and romantic because there aren't evil people around doing evil things. On these streets, you look around and you see drug dealers trying to call people back to the pipe. You see, uh, you see friends who aren't friends at all saying, come, come drink with us again. You see bosses, when you look around in this world, that say, just lie to them. Close the deal. In this world, you look around and you see the mean boy or girl at school who who knows just the way to get at you, make it hurt, make it sting. Evil. There's the trafficker, the liar, the abusive boyfriend. Evil people. Evil acts. Our world is full of them. So why don't we just go live in the world of TV commercials? Why don't we just do that? Well, because we know deep down that that won't really satisfy us. 
that the medicine might take a little bit of the edge off, but the problem still persists. The beverage doesn't really make your friends any better and your life any better. The car is only exciting for the first couple of days. The online boyfriend, <laughs> he's not exactly what his profile picture seemed to be. Because see, the world of TV commercials lacks another thing. It lacks the triune God of the Bible. can really solve the problems. So Christians, should we act like we live in the world of TV commercials? Should we just act like everything's great all the time? Things are fun and exciting, romantic? How are we supposed to act when we bump into the real world where there is evil? When we see evil people, what are we supposed to do when we watch the news? When we are the ones harmed? Well, Psalm 10 actually tells us what to do. When we see evil... When you see evil, it tells you what to do. To pray. Tells you to pray. Seems very spiritual, very simplistic. But that's what God's Word is saying. Pray. Psalm 9 and 10, Psalm 9 was preached last week, were originally one psalm. There was an acrostic uh, with the letters of the Hebrew alphabet working their way through. And where Psalm 9 is mostly sunshine with the occasional gray cloud, blowing through. Psalm 10 is darkness. It is black clouds. It is recognizing that this world is a hard place to live in because there's evil. But prayer can help the sun shine through. But it's hard enough to pray as it is. I'm sure none of you came in this week saying, I had a really great week praying. I'm really good at it. I'm, I'm, in fact, I'm an expert. Ask me how to pray. But Psalm 10 is actually going to do that. When you see evil, pray. So how are we going to pray? We're going to look at four things. And you're going to latch on to some C's that I'm going to give you. But the first, the first one we're going to look at is when you see evil and you pray is to cry honestly. You cry honestly. Then the second one is you name the crimes. Name the crimes. Then third, you call for help. You don't just do nothing. You actually call on God to help you. And then fourth, you express your confidence. You have confidence at the end of your prayer. So those four C's, cry, crimes, call, and confidence. So when you see evil, pray. But where do we begin? We cry honestly. Honestly. Some Christians are just so pious. We're just so holy, we think. Oh, evil is happening out there and it's horrible, but, but I've got Jesus in my heart and so it just doesn't faze me. I'll just, just act like nothing can get through this wall. But is that the Christian response? Is that the biblical response? The reality is there's nothing more godly than crying at times. Look with me at verse 1. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Why? If we're really honest, it's not just that we see evil around us that we feel powerless to help with. That, that bothers us. But the other thing that bothers us, if we're really honest, 
is lots of times God doesn't seem to care. He seems far away. He seems to hide himself in those times. Cry honestly. And if hell, if, if heaven rather, is a place where Jesus is near and in God's presence there is fullness of joy, so when you're near to God, you feel literally like you are in heaven, then what must it be like when God seems to stand far away? When He seems to hide Himself? It must be like the experience of hell. And many of us have experienced it. So experiencing God at a distance, when you, when you feel that way, the best thing to do though is actually be honest. To cry honestly. It's okay to ask why. The Holy Spirit is speaking through David. And he's saying, why? Why is it like this, God? Why? Cry honestly. God is the God of truth anyhow. He knows what we're thinking. You don't need to fake it. He's honored. He, we're showing Him that we trust Him when we cry honestly. He loves that. So it is the Christian response. Asking why, according to Psalm 10, crying honestly may actually be a sign that God is at work in your life. And since we're gospel-centered Christians focusing on Jesus, how His life, death, and resurrection impact everything, the question is, is there anywhere in the gospel, maybe, where we see someone crying this honestly? And the answer is yes. Because in Mark chapter 15, verse 34, Jesus is on the cross, bearing the weight of sin and the wrath of God for sinners in our place. And what does He cry? God, I'm glad you're in control right now. This is no big deal. No. He says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? Jesus loves us so much that He not only saw evil, He experienced it for us. He experienced it for us. He's not disinterested. He knows what it's like to cry honestly. In fact, His whole life was an honest life. He prayed when He saw evil. He prayed when He experienced evil. And He cried honestly. A lot of people we've learned in the last couple generations have left the church. Part of the reason why is because they feel like the church is not a place where you can really be honest. It's not really an honest place. But if God can accept honest questions, so should we as Christians. It should be a place to have honest questions. And so you're always welcome any day uh, particularly on Sundays, to ask me hard questions. I'll try to answer them. But to help do this corporately, starting this month, the last Sunday of every month, near the end of our service, we're going to have a 15 to 20 minute public question and answer time. You can invite your non-Christian friends. You can, you can ask questions uh, that are, are troubling you. God isn't afraid of our honest questions. So we're going to try not to either. So when you see evil though, the question is the, the answer is not just to ask questions. That's just part of it. That's part of the prayer. When we see evil, we pray. But what else do we do besides we crying honestly? The next step is to name the crimes. 
name the crimes. Sin is a crime against God. And what we're going to see here is we're going to see a couple crimes being brought out. Couple sins. And the reason why they are problems is because they are precisely the opposite of who God is. Who God is. Sin is a crime. It's a crime against God. So when we look at Psalm 10 and we see evil around us, we see him not hiding what's going on. He names them. So we need to name the crimes too. There's two big crimes in verses 2 through 11, which we're going to read. Those two big crimes are these. The crime of pride and the crime of oppression. Pride and oppression. Let's read verses 2 and 11 with me. In arrogance, that's pride, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. That's oppression. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts, there's pride, of the desires of his soul. And the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. There's pride again. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on on high, out of sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. That's pride. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. There's pride again. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. There's oppression. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. There it is again. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed. Think down. Fall by his might. There's oppression. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He'll never see it. There's pride. So we need to name the crime of pride. Pride is not a crime in the United States. It's not. It's often viewed as a virtue. Feel good about yourself all the time. But crime is the chief, or pride is the chief crime in God's economy, in God's government. If if evil is the tree, then pride is the root. If evil is the emerald city, pride is the very first yellow brick on the road. Notice pride at work in Psalm 10. I just want you to notice this. Pride thinks it can pursue and harm the poor without consequence. That's verse 2. Pride thinks only of its own desires. That's verse 3. Pride behaves as if humans are the highest beings and that there is no one to hold them accountable. That's verse 4. Pride ignorantly puffs at people who try to correct them. That's verse 5. Pride thinks that while bad things may happen to others, a proud person believes that nothing bad will happen to him. Pride. Pride. Great crime. In India... Pride's okay. They have a caste system. Their Hinduism has been applied to their social settings. And so if you're at the upper echelon of society, you're a Brahmin, it's okay for you to feel like you're better than the people down there. That's okay. 
That's acceptable. Yeah, it might have been stuff to do with the past life, but pride's not a problem there. In communist countries, even though they say everybody's equal, proud people rise to the top and they look down at the lowly comrade doing all the work while they benefit. But that's not allowed in Christianity. And it's not allowed in the church. It's a great crime. It's a great sin. Pride is. And the reason why is because sin is always defined in relation to God. Pride is a lifting of yourself up. Trying to lift yourself up in some way. And ultimately you want to lift yourself up past God. Some way. So when we read all this evil, murders, kidnappings, we might need to ask ourselves, is that root at work in us? If things get out of control, if it goes unchecked, is that where we're going to end up? Sin is a, an attack on God, so we must name that crime. can lead to all the sorts of horrors described here. So here's some common symptoms of pride I've seen in my life. You don't pray very much. You pray, a, you, you, you put it on your schedule and you pray a little bit. It's important to you, but, but in the end, like, if something can be pushed aside, you push that aside. Well, you just think you don't need God's help. That's pride. Or when an accusation comes in, you defend yourself right away or you lie. That's pride. You think you've got to maintain some sort of image of your reputation. That doesn't mean don't defend yourself when, it's, when you need to, when it's about honesty and justice, but do you always need to? Do you get angry easily? If you're getting angry easily, it's because someone's coming in and, and getting in your way usually. That's because you think your way is more important than the other people. That's pride. All those sorts of things. Maybe you don't listen. When someone's talking to you, you're thinking, oh, I've got a, that's a good story, but I, I, I want to tell one even better. Let me, wait, are you, are you done? Are you done? I, I've got something really important to say, more important than you. Okay, you're done. Okay, let me tell you. That's pride. And pride is the root sin that leads, Jesus tells us, the sins in our heart are what lead to murder and adultery and sexual immorality, theft, abuse of government, you name it. Church leadership failures. So we need to pray. We need to name these crimes. We, don't, we shouldn't hide them. We need to name them. Let God know we see them too. When people, when people protest and picket places, they want someone to hear them. They want the government or society to hear, the, hear people uh, state the crimes that have been committed against them. Pay attention to us. When you pray, it's good to name the crimes because you're just stating those crimes to God. We want God to hear us and He wants to listen. So name the crimes. Name the crime of pride. We also need to name the crime of oppression. Name the crime of oppression. If pride is lifting oneself up, oppression is pushing others down. Now, in my generation, a little bit younger, people heavily influenced by Marxism, 
love that word oppression. They love to say that there's really only two ways people can relate to each other. You can either be oppressed or you can oppress others. We reject that as Christians. We think there are ways, because of God's grace, for there to be mutually edifying relationships. But, oppression does exist. Verse 7 and verse 18 tell us that it's real. It really matters. So I'm not going to hide away from a word that the Bible says. And look at the way that that oppression is described. One day, I was, it was this time of year actually, I was driving in mountain roads looking for the, the wily ruffed grouse, basically a wild chicken, hunting it. And I was driving down this road, it was way overgrown, uh, it had not been cleared in a long time, and like the, the branches are just like scraping the side of my red GMC Sonoma, whipping past, uh, it bent the, the mirrors in. And I come around this corner one time and, and I see this animal in front of me start running up this hillside. And, and I'm like, what is that thing? And behold, it was a cougar staring right back at me. Well, I had a cougar tag. So I reach in and I get my rifle and I can barely get out of the truck because of the brush and I shut it and I get in front of my truck and I'm walking down this road, which most people would call this a trail, like this is not a road. And the, the cougar kind of disappears in the brush and it was the strangest one of the strangest moments all the times I've been in the woods because it was silence. See, I wasn't the only one that knew there was a cougar around. And I started, as I started walking down the road, I realized something. It was so brushy, I could see about three feet in this direction and about five feet in that direction. And I realized the advantage of a long-range rifle was gone. And I realized that it was possible that this cougar was just lurking a few feet away in ambush. And I was not confident I could win in hand-to-hand combat. So I went back to the vehicle and squeaked and scratched my way up the road. There are evil and deadly people in the overgrowth of our lives around us, sneakily calling you back. Maybe your own heart is with them. Come, come on, come party with us again. Come on, let's go spend all our money on this thing. There's, there's people sneakily in websites saying, come click on this. You haven't seen any nudity for a while. Or, you know what, you need to spend your money on this waste of, uh, of that you need. Yeah, I know you have four coats, but winter is coming. And those coats were last year's style. Or, oh look, there, I can play this fun video game. Never mind that it will waste hours or weeks of my life. I should click on this. Just calling you to love the world rather than Jesus. Calling you to approve of what God calls sin. They're sitting in ambush, verse 7 tells us. Lurking like a lion to seize the poor, to oppress you, be oppressed. They have nets and traps. And we have to be careful that we're not oppressors ourselves. Because notice that it tends to be the poor who are the ones who suffer the most. The rich 
we can, the, the wealthy here, and most Americans would be historically wealthy, basically all of us. We have more than one pair of clothes. We have means of transportation, things like that, electricity. Because of that, we have a little more cushion to get away when people try to oppress us. But the poor don't. And this is abhorrent to God because God cares for the poor. God is, Jesus is gentle and lowly, cares for people. So how do you acquire and use your wealth? Luke's going to talk about this a lot. And it's not just Luke. It's Jesus talking about it a lot. Do you use wealth to be a blessing to other people? Or do you take advantage of people? If you're in sales, do you think, I can really serve people by helping them uh, with this loan or this product or this service? Or do you think, man, I just got to find the next sucker? Well, maybe you wouldn't say that out loud or to their face. Jesus had very, very little, yet he was always caring for the people around him, generous with the people around him. So we need to be generous with the people around us. We should give to the church and its mission. We should give to other causes that care for the poor. And especially within the New Testament tells us the household of faith, but also our eyes are open elsewhere too. How do we Use that. We should be trying to lift people up because Jesus says that those, those who humble themselves will be exalted. The, the first will be last. So we want the last to be first. Well, so Jesus loved the poor. In Psalm 10, we see David felt really powerless with all this evil going on. Human evil was everywhere. And God seemed distant and disinterested. Taliban wipes out the underground church in Kabul, which is a perhaps trustworthy rumor I heard this week. Basically martyred the, the underground church there. God seems to do nothing. Seems like he's standing at a distance. This is a real challenge for our faith. And maybe you're someone here who isn't a Christian and you think to yourself, if God is good, how could he allow evil? Now, if you're really suffering, I wouldn't answer you this way, but if it's just an intellectual question, let me try to answer it. Are you sure, are you sure that there cannot be a good reason for evil to exist? Are you sure of that? Because there is a difference. Because we're a very proud society. We think that if we can't see a reason, one must not exist. But those two things don't logically follow. Just because puny human beings with very short, limited lifespans and limited perception don't quite see a reason for evil, does not logically follow that it could, there could not be a reason for it to exist. It could happen. And maybe because God is giving those evil people a chance to repent and be changed. It could be to help you be less evil. And sometimes people also, we we'll see in Psalm 10, raise the issue of the problem of evil, and it's not really an intellectual problem at all. It's a religious one. Notice the contrast between verse 4 and then verses 11 and 13. Verse 4, he says, the evil person says, there is no God. 
But verse 11 and verse 13 show that deep down, he really just hopes God doesn't hold him accountable. So he hopes that the God he supposedly doesn't believe in will just leave him alone. That's a religious reason. Saying, I want to do what I want to do. And I don't want God to tell me. Now listen, every human being has been there. So if you feel that way, we've been there. But be honest and recognize that's not an intellectual objection. That's a religious one. And maybe if you talk to God in prayer like this when you see evil, you'll get to know God the way David did. And you won't feel that way. So name the crimes. That was our longest point. We'll move quickly the rest of the way. The main idea, again, is to pray when you see evil. When you see evil, pray. So first, cry honestly. Second, name the crimes. And now third, call for help. Call for help. That's important. It's often overlooked. Call for help. Read verses 12 through 15 with me. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account, but you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. David looks around. He sees evil everywhere. He cries honestly. He asks why, but he doesn't stay there. He actually calls for God to help. He's not a deist. Deists are people who believe God exists, but doesn't ever do anything and act in the world. And a lot of Christians live that way. We ask why, or we confess the crime, we, we name the crimes, but then we just say, ah, there's nothing to do. What are, we, what are you going to do? It is what it is. No. When you see evil, pray, and that means calling for help. We know that God comes to help because Jesus lived and always helped the needy. He cared for them. He loved to see dependent people and care for them. He was helping the helpless, as verse 14 tells us. That's what his life was about. God is a helper of the fatherless, which implies, fathers, that you are helping your kids. There is a difference between one who doesn't have a father and the way you are, assuming that you're helping your children. And notice how verse 14 tells us that God does see evil in the public square. He sees it. So the U.S. may or may not be going to hell in a handbasket, as, as previous generations might have said. Maybe. Probably. I don't know. But God is not blindfolded, this text tells us, to what's going on. He sees it. And He has power to use His strength, the strength of His hand, that's implying power, to break the arm, verse 12, of the evil, and call them to account. Excuse me, the strength of His hand is verse 12, and then to break the arm is verse 15. He can call them to account. So God, God is called for help when David prays, and when we should pray as well. So Christians are often criticized for expressing thoughts and prayers when a tragedy happens. They say, we're often criticized for saying, well, just do something. But the same people who raise that criticism, what do they do? They call for 
Congress to release an act, some new bill banning uh, some firearm or some, uh, some sort of oppression or, or whatever, which might be worthwhile. But it seems wrong for them who appeal to somebody else to act to criticize Christians who call the God of the universe to act. It makes sense for us to offer thoughts and prayers. Maybe not just thoughts and prayers, but it's perfectly logical to call God to help. So let's do it when we see evil. Let's actually pray. So when you see evil, pray. Cry honestly, name the crimes, call for help, and lastly, express confidence. Express confidence. Read verses 16-18 through 18 with me. The Lord is King. How long? Forever and ever. The nations perish from His land. O Lord, You hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline Your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that, the man, who, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. David had confidence in God. David knew God was king. David knew, as he says in verse 17, that God hears expressed his confidence. You hear. He knew God was hearing the cries of the afflicted. Some of you have been victims of horrendous evil. Horrible things. You need to know and have confidence that God hears you when you pray. Have confidence in that. God hears you. God will strengthen your heart. We're told here, verse 17, and the Lord and only the Lord is king forever and ever. He is always ruling. He will never be brought off his throne. The wicked have only a few years, a few moments, a few decades at the most, and then they're gone. But the Lord is king forever and ever. We will see in Luke's gospel that Jesus has come to restore the kingdom. Come to restore the kingdom. And he's done it, he does it the way all kings traditionally establish their rule. By conquering. But Jesus conquers in a very unique way. He comes and he conquers hearts. He comes and he says, you, you won't be able to stand before my ju- judgment, my rule. So you need to submit to my rule. And I will provide for you. Jesus came and cared for the afflicted. He, he defended them from the evil. He healed the sick. He, rege- he rebuked the religious leaders who were basically false teachers, calling people away from the God of the Bible, away from Jesus himself. He was a king, but he cared for the oppressed rather than oppressing them. He was a king who humbled himself rather than being really proud. And he was a king who lived like a citizen, a perfect citizen for us. Rather than taking up and fulfilling only what brought him pleasure, although that was involved, he humbled himself and gave up his life for people. Died on the cross for us. You can have confidence in a king like that, that he loves you, he's the king who cares. So you may not have confidence in the president or the legislature or the police 
or the rioters or whoever. But you can have confidence in this King. And since Jesus defeated death, He will reign forever and ever. His resurrection, He showed that death can't hold Him. So there's no, nobody can force Him off the throne ever. He lives there forever. Express your confidence in the King who cares. Submit yourself to Him. Give up on your pride. Give up on it. And God can transform you. Even if you read these, these descriptions of the evil, and you say, that's me. Even if that's you, He can transform you. So pay attention to something in here. Young people, high schoolers, college, you will be in charge soon. The nations perish, we're told in verse 16. Soon it will be your turn. And then it won't be. So you need a king who will rule forever. It won't be able to be you. Parents, your parenting style or choice of education is not where you need to put your confidence. Put your confidence, express your confidence in the king here, the king who cares. Put it in the Lord alone. He is the only one who's going to rule forever and ever. So as a church, we need to do that. And what's interesting is the more you get to know God, the more confidence you'll have in Him. The reason why David could write this, he knew the Lord. He knew God was going to do justly, do the right thing, help the helpless. So we need to know the Lord and we need to recognize that it, sooner or later, God will do justice. He will do it. God will wipe as verse 17 tells us, or verse 18, he's going to wipe the evil man off the earth so that there, there can't be terror stricken in our hearts anymore. That's coming. It's a promise. So when we see evil around us and experience suffering, we should pray. And what's really interesting is that we have a lot we can learn from children in this regard. Child at school, on the playground, at the park, maybe with their siblings, they get hurt. Someone hurts them. And what do they do? They don't usually just tough it out. They come and they cry, honestly. And what do they do? They name the crime. They say, here's what she did. No, she started it first. No, here's, here's what happened. And then they ask mom or dad to do something. Then they expect, they have confidence that mom or dad can actually make it right. Little kids, we can learn from them. So grown-ups, let's learn from kids. Let's cry honestly when we see evil. Let's name the crimes. We don't need to hide it. Let's actually call on God to act because he will. And then let's have confidence. Always have confidence that he'll do what's right. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this word. Thank you for the truth of Psalm 10. We pray we'd be a praying people. We need your help. Lord, we see evil around us. Some of us see it right next to us. And we all see a little bit in our heart. So Lord, we pray that you would act change what's going on in this world. Change what's going on in our hearts. We pray that you would 
that we would have confidence that you know what you are doing and that you love us and that you care. In Jesus' name, amen.